to those who visit Mickey D's for their favorite breakfast item and then go somewhere else for coffee, give this Mickey D's brew a second chance. The glow up was real. Try any size iced coffee brewed with 100% Arabica beans for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. And pair it with a savory sausage McMuffin with egg for $2.79. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is August the 20th, and my guest is Joseph McKinney. Joseph is the CEO of the Katawa Digital Economic Zone. He's a leader in the governance as a service industry, which aims to improve governmental services through special economic zones and distributed ledger technologies. Joseph, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Good morning. What would you like listeners to know about you? I've been in the zone space for, I think, about seven years now, and around the same time in the blockchain space, and uh, passionate about making that happen here in the heart of the United States with the Catawba Digital Economic Zone. How has the space changed over the last seven years? There's always been a space of special jurisdictions since the very beginning of cities. Even after World War II, there has been these special jurisdictions Shenzhen and other special economic zones like in Dubai. Um, but when we first started about seven years ago, we were interested in the more innovative ones, the ones that were trying to create pockets of clarity and ability to innovate. And at that stage, it was pretty small and it still is small, but it was also the lack of actual projects in the space was pretty tangible. At this point, it was on the verge of LARPing. Almost. Everyone was trying to make something happen or, frankly, fantasizing about something happening, but nothing really transpiring in any real concrete sense. But now it's at the stage that Bitcoin was, like, let's say in 2014, that you're getting the first glimmers of this type of innovative jurisdiction and, and, and making it a reality with real projects coming up. Can you talk a bit more about the idea of governance as a service? In contrast with the way that standard governance has been in the late Westphalian system, that you have a state, you have a ruler that's strictly differentiated from the ruled. And while there are like general lofty obligations of service, there isn't really that mentality of service that you often receive when you're dealing with a private organization, whether that be profit, for profit or nonprofit that the goal of that organization is to serve the people that they're aiming to serve. What governance as a service is, is jurisdictions or governance where they're trying their best to make sure that the governance that they're providing is for the best of those that they serve. And that can be done through for-profit or non-profit mechanisms. So many governments are local monopolies, right? Yeah. So there's only one service provider. Exactly. And there's extremely high switching costs to go to another <laughs> You'd have to go to a different country, leave all your friends behind. and. Yep, no, exactly. And, uh, and to a certain extent, at least for the foreseeable future, there, there will likely be a natural monopoly on governance because of, as of now, uh, sovereignty 
is tied to land, and that is tied to recognition by other sovereign nation states. Now, that might shift over the coming years, but for the foreseeable future, there's going to have to be some sort of monopoly. Now, the question is, how big is that monopoly? Is that monopoly over a large geographic area or a small geographic area? And I think what we're moving towards is that you're going to see a lot of, and you have seen a lot of competitive small jurisdictions leading the pack. And you've seen this even with things that fall more neatly under the Westphalian system like Liechtenstein or even Singapore to a certain extent. But then you're now getting more special jurisdictions that are even subsets between those organizations that are starting to become more and more prevalent. And what's the role of special economic zones in particular in disrupting governance as a service? So one of the disruptive parts about it is that it does not disrupt. It is within a nation state framework. It serves objectives of a nation state. But at the same time, it provides that change that's necessary within it that provides more space than normally would be allowed. And the disruptive part about it is that how frequent they have become and how deep the reforms are becoming. Basically, they allow a space for experimentation that wouldn't be normally allowed on the nation state level. And the most common example is China. And I'm sure your viewers have listened to this a lot, but they were so big and so centralized, especially after the death of Mao, that there was no way that they could have the reforms necessary to prevent large scale starvation and frankly, even revolution and open revolt, unless they did on a small scale. So that's what they did. There was entrepreneurs in the Pearl River Delta and elsewhere that trying to make reforms happen. Essentially, the Communist Party consented to it saying, yes, this makes sense and aligns with our objectives of implementing reforms on a small scale. And they allowed it. And now Shenzhen is one of the biggest cities in the world with the GDP close to Ireland, Portugal, or Vietnam. And now you have over 4,500 special economic zones, actually 5,400 special economic zones all around the world. It's remarkable if you think about it. That happened within a span of only a couple of decades. Yeah. So arguably, special economic zones are the technology that lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in China. Precisely. And how does distributed ledger technology, by which I assume you mean blockchain, play a role? What they allow on the software level is similar to what special economic zones provide. They provide a new way of organizing people. But rather than strictly limiting it to merely the physical space, distributed ledger technology allows to establish social and financial relationships with code in a way that is immediately verifiable to outsiders. So they have a different level of transparency and accountability. So that's very interesting from that standpoint. But also they can go hand in hand together. They can help govern the other. For instance, you can have digital identities associated with people within a special economic zone, or you can have supply chain management done with different distributed ledger technology to make sure you're tracking goods properly and knowing where they're coming from and coming to. So there's a lot of different intersections of DLT and special economic zones. And the way that our project does is We're providing rules which clarify under existing law how DLT fits within the existing system, providing certainty and clarity for entrepreneurs that are operating in that space, while at the same time providing compliance as well as a space to innovate. 
So can you use kind of smart contracts for the laws that you're developing? So we got to be careful here because there is actually a problem with that kind of concept, the idea that, that code and law, and it's ultimately because law is interpretation in many aspects. And obviously things can be more or less black and white, but ultimately at the end of the day, law is based off of, especially in the common law system, based on interpretation that has been established and continues to change over many years. And one key example of this was actually the Slocket. Um, so the Slocket DAO was the first DAO, and this was done on the Ethereum blockchain at the very early stages. And they had just launched it. And they were very much purporting the idea that law is code and that the agreement that, that the Slocket DAO had with each of its members is the smart contracts itself. But the problem with that is that a white hat hacker, at least according to him, he was a white hat hacker, found a flaw in the code, a bug, and he used it to steal millions and millions of dollars of Ethereum. And this was so catastrophic to the DAO, and in fact, even to the Ethereum ecosystem, that the original stakeholders of Ethereum, including the Ethereum Foundation, I believe, they actually reversed the transaction. They turned back the blockchain, so to speak, to reverse that transaction. But because of the code is law principle, I don't know exactly how this court case ended. It might have ended in the settlement or what have you. But the hacker actually filed for legal action against the Slocket DAO and maybe even Ethereum because, according to them, code is law. So what he did was completely legal and within his rights. He was operating under the parameters of the code. And this led to a whole huge debate within the Ethereum ecosystem that led to the Ethereum and Ethereum classic divide. And yeah, so... We can't say that code is law because law is not binary like code is. There needs to be interpretation over time. However, to a certain extent, we do recognize smart contracts, obviously. But on top of it, we also recognize normal jurisprudence when it comes to contracts. I'm glad we spoke about that because I spoke to Tom W. Bell about the idea of law as code or law as the code of society. And I think there is a truth to that idea that it is the operating system that we build other things on. Yes. So by improving it, we can also improve the apps we build on that platform. Yes. But I agree with you, and that was a great explanation as to why that there is not, you can't provide this definiteness, this kind of digital zero one. Yeah. In this case, this happens. In this case, this happens. So you can automate the process, right? Yeah. There is things like interpretation. There's informal rules like things that you don't even need a formal law for. You can't, or it seems to be a better approach to have a common law-based system where you use interpretation as a tool instead of trying to have the legal codes completely zero-one-based, right? Yeah, and that, I get the allure. The idea of automating and clarifying and getting as much interpretation as possible, that's very attractive. In certain aspects, that could be changed at the margin, but no, ultimately... New factors are going to emerge and it's going to require new interpretation. Yes, I agree with Tom that law is like software. It's not the same, obviously. And, but I do not believe that code is law, but it can certainly help. Yeah, it might be slightly wonky to ponder on that point, but I really like it because we're getting all this practical experience now. So for a long time, this was theory. 
right? So a lot of legal scholars and intellectuals had all sorts of theories of how we could make law better, how we could implement it. the ideas that evolved in, within the blockchain space and decentralizing things and smart contracts. And now when we're implementing them in practice and we're learning from practitioners such as you, what works and what doesn't. So I just really like that. Very cool. With that said, what and why is the Catawba Digital Economic Zone? Yes. One down and dirty way to explain is imagine if you have a Delaware 3.0 or a 51st state. And the reason for that is that the Catawba Digital Economic Zone is a special jurisdiction enabled and created by a sovereign Native American tribe within the United States. And under U.S. law and the Constitution, tribes have the same status as, as U.S. states in regards to civil law and business regulation, oftentimes higher. They are considered domestic-dependent nations and sovereign and pre-constitutional. As a consequence of that, for at least for the case that the zone is moving forward with, they have all the same authorities in Delaware to set up business entities, commercial codes, and business regulations, or Wyoming or what have you. And essentially what the law was that was passed on February 19th of this year enabled is a creation of a special jurisdiction with its own commercial code based on best practices from around the world. Actually, modeled after Tom W. Bell's work on ULEX, which includes best-in-class private sources of, of common law, such as the American Legal Institute, the Uniform Law Commission, and the American Bar Association. So all that case law synthesization of precedent over all common law jurisdictions, that's all baked right into the very commercial law fabric of the zone. And what the law also did is that it created a nimble regulatory body, the mixture of the Delaware Secretary of State plus a financial services regulator. And what that entity does is that it's the entity responsible for registering companies using a digital platform, as well as promulgating regulations at the same level as a U.S. state in regards to banking, securities, a definition of digital assets, fintech, money transmission, in all forms of business regulation, which take place digitally or even to a certain extent, even physically. So yeah, that's just the overall of what the zone is. Why is the zone? <laughs> well, so the United States, for all of its flaws and its relative decline in the world, is still one of the most competitive places in the world to do business. Yet, it has flaws and gaps in key areas that are vital to its growth and vital for economic development all around the world. It actually makes a lot of sense for special economic zones to exist there. In fact, they can be the more, most competitive in the world um, because of it's really important to have special economic zones in developing regions and around the world, obviously. But they will always be a little less competitive because they don't have the same capital security, payment rails, amount of retail investors that, let's say, the United States has. So having the best of both worlds, being able to solve a problem in governance that's really crucial while still having that best-in-class legal stability, capital framework, and, and capital rails, that creates a perfect storm for one of the most competitive special economic zones in the world. And the problem that the Catawba zone is specifically addressing is the gap of how the United States deals with digital assets. And one of the biggest problems in digital assets isn't necessarily overregulation. It's a lack of clarification on key points. How is it defined during, under existing law? How is it treated? How do we provide stability for entrepreneurs? 
So what the zone provides is the most competitive place in the world to register and to have your digital asset company uh, regulated. So that's a down and dirty way of saying the value that it brings to the world, but also from a philosophical standpoint, it is run by a Native American tribe. It is their project and it is a key part to their economic development, not just their economic development, but their sovereignty. Because Native American tribes over many years, not because they don't have the legal authority to do, but because of the lack of resources and therefore not able to bring in the expertise necessary, have not been able to flex their full sovereign muscles. They've been limited to one-off attempts at a jurisdictional arbitrage and not to denigrate them. It's important. What gaming has done Indian nations in the United States has been crucial for the economic development or cannabis or what have you, but they haven't really moved the needle as a full-on jurisdiction. And what this project does is that it, it creates that atmosphere where they're actually serving as a jurisdiction for others. They're serving as a full-scale government for businesses around the world. Can you talk more about the Catawba tribe? Yes. What is it and what's their the legal status and are there other Indian nations, Native American nations that could adopt this framework? Yeah, so there are over 500 federally recognized uh, Native American tribes across the United States. And they all have the same legal authority to varying degrees, actually. They all have, in principle, the same legal authority. However, like any other sovereign, they, they can limit their own sovereignty if they want through agreement. So some tribes may limit their sovereignty in certain areas by agreements with U.S. states. And this is often done in the form of the gaming compact, for instance, where they have the right to do gaming based on federal law, but then they trade off some other element of sovereignty. And like every other U.S. state, they are subject to the power of Congress. However, unlike U.S. states, there's a much stricter set of rules on how they limit the sovereignty of tribes than U.S. states. They have to be hyper-specific if they are to remove their sovereignty. And if they haven't issued that that edict, then that right is assumed to be retained. And one actually really key example of this was a case that was settled in 2020 called McGirt versus Oklahoma. It was a criminal case that occurred on formerly federal Indian land, a former reservation. And what the defendant said is that the state of Oklahoma could not try him because of technically it was under reservation lands. So they didn't have jurisdiction. And obviously that went to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court ruled is because Congress didn't explicitly, though it did pass legislation saying to the effect that the reservation was removed, it didn't say it explicitly enough. And as a consequence, at the time, 40% of Oklahoma was given new jurisdiction to tribal governments to try cases, um, which was a pretty crazy consequence, but just an indication of the level of authority that they have. And in terms of the Catawba, they had a deal was something that many tribes had to deal with during the termination era, which is they actually lost their sovereignty. Tribes were given the opportunity to reapply for their federal status, and the Catawba did not, mostly because of shady communication tactics by the federal. But as a consequence of that, in the 1940s, they lost their sovereignty for a while. But like many tribes that lost their federal status during that period, they sued the federal government for it back and got it back in 1993. And uh, there are a tribe about of three and a half thousand people, mostly located in the Carolinas, but also across the country. And they're a fairly unique tribe. And I'm honored to 
consider many of them my friends, colleagues, and work with them on a daily basis living here in the Carolinas. Fantastic. So how was this idea born to make a fintech-focused jurisdiction out of Catawba? Like I said, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit associated with simply defining digital assets under existing law and how the Catawba fit in terms of a state-level framework. That's where they really could succeed at, is at that financial level, at that non-physical, located level. It could really thrive. But also from a business standpoint, when you other special economics on projects, they're not really VC investable. And the reason for that is that the marginal cost of acquiring a new customer through real estate is much higher, infinitely higher than through a software platform. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very difficult to scale. Now, obviously, there's examples of that happening. If you were an investor in Hong Kong 100 years ago or Singapore like 50 years ago and you invested in the land, you would get the same type of return that you would from a venture invested company. But that's definitely not the norm. However, with this project, if you're focusing on financial services and remote uh, domiciling and what have you, you have something that's much more similar to a VC invest company that the marginal returns of getting another customer, of getting them to use a digital platform and register are infinitely lower. As a consequence, it can scale much higher and that's a lot more profitable for the Catawba. Fantastic. You use startup terminology to describe what we're doing. So many listeners will feel familiar with that, as do I as a VC. And so I can, that's why I'm highly sympathizing with that argument that it's a very VC fundable case. Also for companies that get incorporated there. So what is your customer persona, the kinds of companies you want to attract to incorporate there? So ultimately, we want to be a general jurisdiction. Our goal is to disrupt Delaware. However, like any new business, you need to focus on an initial target market. So for now, like I mentioned, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in defining the Web3 space and really, really dominating that niche. So that's why we're focusing on that. So the customer profile for that specific niche are DAOs, exchanges, companies that are operating digital assets, fintechs, banks, Novo banks, basically anything within the realm of fintech and Web3. Fantastic. So how big could this become? Like how much does Delaware incorporation laws actually generate in revenue? 1.6 billion. And they leave a lot of money on the table because if they're mm. merely getting revenue from the company incorporation aspect of it all. What our goal is to incorporate the other elements that are developing value from the Delaware system directly into the platform. For instance, we will be rolling out our own bank chartering system soon with the ability to set up bank charters. And we'll be able to generate transaction fees off of the different security sales and exchanges that will be baked in, and as well as other services that we plan to add to it that are normally distributed across a bunch of different businesses in Delaware or people who service Delaware companies that will instead be directly tied to the platform rather than distributed elsewhere. So it seems to me that many founders in the crypto and blockchain space there's a lot of new regulation coming in Europe and the United States. Yeah. So I'm assuming these are the kinds of people you want to attract. It also seems to me that other countries or jurisdictions are competing for the same kind of people. So Lithuania, Liechtenstein, Switzerland, Portugal, Malta. So how would you compare 
your product with these competitors? So I could talk about the policies that are in the pipeline and I can't, but I think mm -hmm. what's more important is actually why we will always win on a fundamental level. And the reason for that is speed. Our regulatory framework is made up of a zone authority that's run by a five-person commission. And the zone, like as often proposed and recommended within zone literature, is a for-profit company. As a consequence, it has a much higher motivation and incentive program to move as quickly as possible and effectively as possible for the industry that they're serving. So because it is nimble and because they have that for-profit incentive, we will always move faster than other jurisdictions. Even if they come up with a better policy or our policy isn't perfect, at the end of the day, when they're discussing it in committee or recess or what have you, by the time that they do that, we can already start putting it up with the zone commissioners and then pass it in short order. We could talk about, and I think we should talk about the different policies that we have implemented and will implement. But ultimately, at the end of the day, our biggest competitive advantage is our speed and our ability to always get to market. Let's talk about the kinds of policies that, that you had in mind. So what's on your product roadmap? So the first regulations that we passed were definitions based on the Wyoming model. Actually, this one is in public, but some of your viewers may or may not be familiar with the Uniform Law Commission. They are essentially the ones who create the Uniform Commercial Codes, which are commercial codes that are adopted by all U.S. states. Basically, it's the legal plumbing that exists between all jurisdictions in the U.S., They have been working for the last couple of years on what they call the digital amendment upgrades through what they call Article 12. And normally when they create a new article or an amendment or a change to the UCC, it takes about a year or two uh, for new jurisdictions to adopt them. Well, last Friday, and hopefully by the time that this podcast is out, yeah, last Friday it was passed. And hopefully by the time this podcast is out, we'll be announcing it. The UC were the first jurisdiction in the United States to adopt it. So we are, by, for all intents and purposes, the most competitive place in the world for digital assets with the most clarity, the most technologically agnostic, and a legal framework that has been adopted by the most competent legal experts in the world. So that's one example of the type of speed and the type of policies we move forward with. Another example is actually something that we put out for a comment period, I think this week, which was our upcoming DAO regulation. And so what the draft regulation has, and by the way, your users can feel free to comment on our website and on our Discord, it includes a menu option for DAO recognition. Similar to the Wyoming example, we allow for them to register as LLCs, but innovation pulled from a lot of thought leaders over at Andreessen Horowitz. We are also allowing DAOs to register as unincorporated nonprofit associations. And the reason for this is because this is the most flexible entity type available. It doesn't require a registered agent. It doesn't have statutory requirements for member managed versus manager managed. Basically, everything can boil down to what they call governing principles, which can be verbal or written or even smart contract agreement based on normal jurisdictional principles, like we mentioned, rather than having to refer constantly to statute. And at the same time, it has limited liability. I believe it can be the most competitive DAO legal framework in the United States. And ones that are a little bit more under the radar, but we're going to be coming out soon, is we have a draft that we're going to be opening for comment soon on our banking framework. So the ability to charter banks within the zone, like you would with any other U.S. state, et cetera, and to allow for them to manage digital assets to a higher extent, even than Wyoming. 
And then after that, we're looking at a stable coin regulation because that's really important in the space right now. And then after that, we'd like to look into insurance and securities and what have you. Amazing. I would like to double click on the DAO regulation since that's a very recent one. <laughs> I find it very interesting because DAOs have been around for a couple of years now. And they always seem to me like many people talked about it as a way of like decentralization away from monolithic companies or whatever. I'm not so sure that's true for me. It always seemed to me like different or an alternative legal guardrails that don't have to follow these statues, as you mentioned, from a company and corporation point of view. So there's just different ways that you can organize, different hierarchies you can form, different forms of governance. And now you're providing the actual legal guardrail for it to recognize it. And just because there is the statutory requirements doesn't mean there's requirements. They're still liable to all the civil protections that are listed within our commercial code and what have you. It just means that there's less statutory bureaucratic measures that other entity types have. But yeah, I mean, the whole point is to provide the most amount of flexibility. And that's not to say that every DAO will, in fact, be good. In fact, just by probability, most of the experimentations that can happen with DAOs and might happen with DAOs will actually be very silly and not work. But the point being is that you should provide that level of flexibility while at the same time, holding people accountable for actions that, you know, are fraudulent or harmful or what have you based on commercial law, not necessarily you know, a super like invasive or non-effective regulatory. Fantastic. The way I described it recently in a conversation was, so if crypto and blockchain is providing kind of alternative ways to do finance and DAOs are providing ways, alternative ways to do organization, especially economic zones or startup cities are really the connective tissue to transform this movement into real world change and impact. Exactly. Providing a space for experimentation and accountability. Absolutely. So that is super, super exciting. What is your kind of go-to-market strategy? How do you want to attract companies to come and find you? And when can companies start incorporating on your platform? So one of the ways that we've been doing fairly well at is just by, and by implementing the type of regulations that we had, we've been done fairly well in the media. We've been in Forbes, Fortune, multiple coin desk articles, and a couple other publications. And the pace of that's going to increase the more and more that we put out regulations. But in terms of a concrete go-to-market strategy, our goal is to reach out to the entities that are essentially serve as the conveyors of trust and also pockets of company and corporation. That means reaching out to not necessarily marking directly to companies. So that's something that we'll do, but reaching out to, let's say, registered agents that have thousands or maybe even tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of company clients from around the world or legal firms or, or even venture capital firms. The reason why Delaware is so successful is, yes, of course, it has its case law and momentum in that space, but it's people in Sand Hill Road, VCs from around the world too. So if you get directly to that source and you talk to VCs about having their portfolio companies be CDES companies rather than Delaware companies, that's when you will see the tide turning. Yeah, it's actually also very relevant for me because right. I'm starting a VC. And right now for me, the only option really is Delaware because that's the place where legal precedent exists. So I wouldn't be able to raise money from investors if it wouldn't be like that. So you need to develop a history and precedent and process, right? This firm has done it. 
here's the first VC that's incorporated here. Maybe it's going to be me. So when can I do that? So we're looking to start registering the first companies at the beginning of next. Wow. Very much looking forward to that. And hopefully I can also play the role as an ambassador to the VC world that this is happening and they can do it. We'd certainly love that. Let's talk offline about that. And what kind of what's the attraction so far? What kinds of companies are you seeing that are looking to incorporate as soon as it's ready? So we've gotten a couple of MOUs from firms that are interested in setting up a bank within the zone um, and also a lot of DAOs. That's been the main focus right now. But We'd like to also see exchanges and crypto insurance companies in the future. Fantastic. What are the top three risks that you're seeing? The biggest one right now is the same problem that Uber had. That, And people often forget this, but it was insane. The idea of jumping in a car with a stranger with a phone app. That was just completely ridiculous to people. There was a learning process there. They had to realize that, oh, this actually works. I'm not going to get murdered, frankly, or a car crash or what have you. And this service is actually better and cheaper than the alternative. So we're going to have to go through a little bit of that learning process too. Because, And I, I, frankly, I think we're in a better situation than that. I think it's a much less strange proposition. But people aren't as familiar with the concept of tribal government serving at the same status as a state government in regards to business regulation. So there will be that learning period. Another one is just a normal one that's with any startup. Anytime that you scale and you have a new company, there's always, you have to be building a new team and, and, and what have you and scaling and building credibility in that manner. And this isn't so much as a risk because the precedent has firmly established Native American tribes in regards to civil law, but just reducing tension between stakeholders, including governmental ones. Thankfully, we've done fairly well with that. We've already engaged with some federal regulators and we think that we're on good grounds with state regulators. And while they don't have legal authority to really intervene in that area, it's always good to have good neighbors because of, from an optics standpoint or an operational standpoint, it's important that you have the least amount of friction possible. And I think that's actually something that other jurisdictions like Wyoming have come across and how that's something that we can do better than. Wyoming, they came across as a little bit and many of their dealings with other jurisdictions or other organizations, whether that's with the ULC or with federal regulators, et cetera. They said, we're a state, we can do what we want. And that's technically true, but it, it does make things a little bit more difficult and people are less willing to cooperate with you versus our philosophy from the very beginning is while the Catawba are sovereign, they're also good neighbors. They're co-governing with other sovereigns and it's necessary to have a good, healthy relationship with them. Great. And what are your top three needs. So I just to give listeners or other entrepreneurs an idea what you're trying to build, what kinds of services are you looking to build or implement? What kinds of help do you, are you looking for? Yeah. So right now, so we're conducting a fundraise about $5 million and uh, we've made some progress in that regard, but we'd like to go further. And the reason that we want to do that largely besides building out the existing tech technology platform is to bring on policy making staff to help grow the regulatory body from that standpoint and also the go-to-market strategy. So those are the main two things that we're focused on the most right now. It's raising capital and building the team. Fantastic. Any of the policies that you want to talk a bit more about? So just 
getting comment period from the DAO, finalizing the banking, soon to be issuing the stable coins. And in the future, we'd like to look at things in regards to securities and insurance, and we'll keep posting stuff about that as soon as we get them. Fantastic. It was really super fascinating to talk to you, Joseph. If governance is an industry, and I believe it is, its underlying stack, governance stack, is probably the most stranded technology in the world, right? Something that hasn't seen a lot of disruption. And we talked about legal systems as a software society and the ways in it, which it is and in a way it isn't like software, right? Yeah. So that was super interesting. We talked about the innovations that the Catawba Digital Economic Zone is introducing to the space, the legal guardrails and laws and regulations that are clarifications. So companies in the digital assets and financial space have better guardrails to work from. So I utterly fascinated <laughs> and I totally believe and want you to disrupt Delaware. <laughs> and so I wish you very good luck and success with that. And I hope I can help you on that journey. Perfect. Yeah, we'd love to work together on that. And yeah, thank you for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you to all the listeners who are taking the time to take a listen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.